Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, Crime Writers On listeners. It is me, Ronald Young Jr., and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, Leaving the Theater. As you may know, I love watching and talking about television, film, and streaming properties. And not just the ones about crime and punishment, whatever Kevin and Rebecca let me. I like watching just about everything. And on Leaving the Theater, I do just that. The catch is, the show is recorded as I'm walking out of the theater after seeing a movie, or on my couch after watching it on television. Sometimes I do this by myself, and other times I bring in guests. But on the show, you get a fresh, instant reaction to whatever we just watched, and we rate it from one to five stars. If you like my takes here on Crime Writers On, you'll love hearing more on Leaving the Theater. We have a backlog of about 90 episodes covering all of your favorite recent and past television, movies, and streaming titles. Leaving the Theater is available everywhere you listen. Go subscribe now. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, And on this episode, six people confessed to the 1985 rape and murder of a Nebraska grandmother, only to be exonerated decades later. Why do they implicate themselves and will their hometown ever believe in their innocence? We'll discuss the HBO original documentary series Mind Over Murder. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And soon to be author of The Final Curtain. Yay! In the home stretch, people. Yay. And finally, our resident doubting Thomas, author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Kevin, we are obviously a weekly podcast in the summer and not a twice weekly podcast in the summer. What is coming up on next Monday's program? Well, next Monday, we're going to be talking about the Netflix show Girl in the Picture. Oh, okay. Looking forward to watching that one and talking about it. All right. Well, I would like to just get to our topic for this program. So can we just go ahead and drop that first clip now, Kevin? Let's do it. Because it's a heavy one. Let's go ahead and drop that. I can sit there and tell you about this, but it's not like seeing that lady on the floor brutally murdered and just seeing the pain. A whole different ballgame. 
After the 1985 rape and murder of grandmother Helen Wilson, investigators obtained confessions from six people who said they were there when it happened. But even after they were exonerated decades later, family members and cops don't believe the so-called Beatrice Six would implicate themselves in a crime they didn't commit. I think there's still a lot of doubts in this community where those six people were that night. I haven't ran into anybody that thinks they should have been exonerated. Some of them agreed that they were guilty. When somebody says they did something, you're going to believe that they did. Meantime, a community theater in the small Nebraska town attempts to confront the crime's impact by staging a play based on transcripts of the suspect's controversial interrogations. I heard one of my coworkers, oh, did you hear? They're doing a play about the Beatrice Six. I'm like, yeah, why? He said, the wounds are still fairly open in town. But I think this is clearly a story that needs to be told. The HBO documentary series Mind Over Murder explores the psychologically complex story of the six people convicted for the murder, the small town cop who drew out their confessions, the psychologist who planted their fake memories, and the town divided on the legacy of what happened. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Mind Over Murder. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. So, Laura, uh, this case, I knew nothing about it. What about you? Yeah, I knew nothing about this either. And I try to make a point of not Googling something that we're going to be reviewing before I start the actual watching or listening, just so that I'm sort of hearing it the way that it is structured for us to absorb the media. But I started watching it. And I don't know about you guys, but we consume a lot. I was really just sickened by the details of the crime and just the way that this poor grandmother died. It was like nauseating listening to this. And I felt rage. And But the thing is, the way that this story was set up with us learning about this horrible, horrible crime, which would horrify anybody was actually a really good way to tell the story because when we find out later what happened, you can, in a way, see how people did things they should not have done. Hmm. But yeah, I didn't know anything about this case. And I was watching this. I was like, oh my God, I can't. A couple episodes ago, we were talking about animals and how I have a really hard time with animal stories. I have a really hard time with stories where elderly people are victimized. And in this case, it was such a horrific and just brutal crime. And then we got to hear it again in the play. Hmm. So, yeah. So, Toby, they make the choice. I mean, Bert Searcy is participating in this documentary, right? So he was the lead investigator who was responsible for the conviction of these six people. He's a lead voice in the documentary. And the documentarians make the choice to let him do a lot of the storytelling and the initial part of it and lead us through the sort of what happened for a big part of it. So we get the cop narrative. And as a viewer who knows nothing about the story, like I did, um, it's troubling. And especially when you sort of are teased with one of the perpetrators going like, yeah, I was there. I think as a viewer, it's like hard to imagine how they're going to turn this thing around. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so because they at the beginning you you know that they're eventually exonerated and then they turn it over to Bert 
who spends what, like three and a half episodes, three episodes, like kind of going through his investigation that by his telling seems super solid. And then he's also got the family of uh, the murdered grandmother who, who are talking about it, sort of reinforcing his view of it. And you see tapes of the suspects confessing. It's a little bit like kind of a gone girl reversal, you know, where you're kind of led. If they hadn't teased ahead of time that the people are going to be exonerated, it would have been a total gone girl thing where it's just like you get to this point. It's like everything you have heard so far is wrong and then giving you the real story. But I, th- I think what's kind of interesting for me is that Bert, I, I don't find Bert to be very sympathetic, but he's interesting in that he's sticking to his guns, man. Like he thinks he solved that thing. He thinks he did a really good job of police work to get to that conclusion and that people are discounting the stuff that he found and revealed while most other people, again, with, with this sort of DNA hindsight are just like, yeah, that was a fucked up investigation. Like that guy did not know what he was doing. His questionings were the worst I've ever seen. And stuff like that. So, you know, I think that's part of what's interesting about the show is sort of our sort of changing perception of Bert, while at the same time, Bert's self-conception doesn't change at all based on this new information that we get. I worked this case. I know the facts. I dealt with these people. They're guilty. So, Kevin, I'm going to ask you about Mr. 1-800-Flowers Detective in a moment. <laughs> okay. uh, but I actually first want to ask you about your sense of the narrative because it is structured. And I, I actually have a want to make a comment about what, what Toby said, because I actually wonder, as much as I do hate a fake out in some ways, I do wonder because I do think it was constructed in a very interesting way. And I do wonder if it could have been even stronger if we hadn't known at the beginning that they had been exonerated. I mean, this is an old case, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like they are necessarily irresponsibly libeling people at this point by not tipping that early enough. So what do you think? Because it was, for me, seemed like real bad looking for them at the beginning because of the way it was put together. Yeah, well, if your question is, should they have withheld that big detail I mean you could look it up obviously but yeah and then then it makes it hard to introduce like the community play and all this other stuff that's that's going on but I think that it immediately piques your interest that as you're watching this investigation you know something's gonna go wrong or it's gonna sound really good but it was constructed well I mean you're right the first episode we hear a lot about Helen Wilson we start to hear about the crime scene and the important things there And then as the investigation rolls on, we hear about some of the suspects. Some of the people, you know, will come back a little later and some of them end up being the six that become the uh, the Beatrice six. But I do feel like it was set up really well so that we are still interested in the case when we start to pull it apart. All right. So now let's talk about Cersei. And of course, I joked about him being 1-800-Detective-Flowers because he uh, now owns a flower shop. We found out he had several jobs after being a police officer. And of course, we found out his even his career as a cop wasn't linear because there were some problems with his career as a cop. You also find him to be a compelling character, right? Yeah. I mean, even more than the killer or the Beatrice Six, I think Bert is a person to whom your eye is drawn, right? He is an example of a cop. I like that, like, he's not a malicious guy, but his over enthusiasm and his 
lack of high-level investigative skills leads to bad outcomes, right? He's making all of the read technique mistakes that we know about. He's feeding them info. He's signaling what's right, what's wrong. He even does the thing where he's interviewing them, and they stops the tape. And then they start the tape again, and then they, all of a sudden they know the color of the car and what the building looks like. The only thing I know that I'll say, I know I didn't do anything wrong. I know legally and technically I did it right, and I know they were guilty. As much as we were curious about how the community handles this revelation that the people that they believe for all these years were the killers aren't the killers, it's interesting to watch him deal with that too, or perhaps not deal with it. Or the way that all the other cops deal with it, and it's like, no, there was a seventh guy. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, like everybody else said, I, I think he is an interesting character to watch. So, Lara, Kevin just said something about, like, you couldn't tell the story a different way because then you couldn't talk about what was going on with the play. The bottom line is, though, the play was only happening because they were making this documentary. The play was a conceit of the documentary maker. And I find myself thinking, like, they didn't have to do that. Like, I don't know how I feel about it. It was a creative choice. It was a way to get people from the town in to talk about the thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't know. I would love to know your thoughts about it as I don't want to incept. I don't want to read technique you with my thoughts about it. <laughs> what were your thoughts about it? Yeah, I have thoughts about it, which are surprising because normally I'd be like, what the fuck? Um, I don't like this. But actually, in this case, because... This town is a small town because this was something everybody in the town knew about so much. People in the town are driving by that brick building where this happened. Everybody knows that's the brick building where the Beatrice 6 thing went down, you know, because everybody did know about this. And I think what was interesting about it was kind of taking a sample of the community and seeing how they reacted when they are given very explicit dialogue to read, very explicit descriptions of what happened to read. That was one of the parts I think I texted you guys and you're like, what, you object to the butt fucking? I'm like, yeah, I don't want to hear about that part. But at the same time, we need to hear about that part to understand the level of just horrificness of this crime. But, you know, I think there have been other documentaries where something like this has been done. And I think aside from taking a snapshot of people in the community, inserting them into this case that they think they know about. And then when they have to actually read the dialogue, they're like, do we really need to say fuck? Do we really need to say, but do we really need to say this? Bullshit, Tom. I got people telling me exactly what you did to that woman. You butt fucked her. Don't sit here and lie to me. I'm not going to listen to this shit. Thank you. That's that's great. Do we have to use the word butt-fucked? It's from the tape. It is. It's sort of like orchestrating this sort of artistic expression of what happened is a way of sort of helping the people in this community take on what happened, even though these aren't the people that were directly impacted by this crime. It's sort of a cathartic exercise rather than just making the film because this is a crime that, because of the nature of this community, like, cut this whole community. It wasn't like something where you're in a big city and something happened. It's like it's like if something happened in my town in Exeter. I can think of some cases that have happened in this town. And it, it affects people to this day that they don't want to talk about. And that's what this is. And so doing something like this 
gives people an opportunity to engage with the nature of what happened. But I don't know, for me, it actually worked. I was kind of surprised because usually I'd be like, no, all set. But it worked in this case. I, I also loved how the people would then go like meet with the real people and be like, I'm trying to get your voice down, Rebecca Lavoie. Rebecca, Rebecca. Okay, so I'll just tell you what I think was weird about it. It's weird that the documentarians are the one who fucking set it up. I find that very weird. What do you think, Toby? Because I think if there were a play happening in the town that someone else was doing and the documentarians were like, okay, this is really interesting that someone in town is staging this play as like an exercise in, you know, community examining this crime. Some like young auteur decided to do this using trial transcripts and we want to tape that process and make it part of our documentary. I think the fact that the documentarian did it is super fucking weird in some ways manipulative and manipulating the narrative of the people that they are also interviewing for the documentary. I found it to be really a strange choice. And I under, I'm not saying that Lara is wrong to find it interesting because I, I could see how other people might find it interesting, but I didn't like it. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I think it would be easier to talk about if we'd seen it all the way to the end to see how it all kind of turns out. Like I can see like being the kind of thing of like, hey, let's give this a shot and see what we get out of it. And if it sucks, we just won't use it. I guess is a way of doing something other than just walking around town and being like, hey, what do you think about what happened? What do you think about what happened? Yeah, yeah. It's getting them to engage a little bit more with the actual substance of Only what's so going many on. times you can ask the barber. That's true. Yeah. 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 So, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, I don't think this is great. <laughs> You know, I just don't know what what's going to go on. Like when we did the one about um, the kid who disappeared and came back and then his brother. I kept thinking about that, but that way they were just using stuff that existed. That right. material and the, that and existed. The, and yeah. the, the stuff that was being read was being read by the actors who played those people yes. when they were kids. Yes. So they, they had this history, right? Right. Where they had tried to take in. And, and then one of them was playing a guy who later goes and kills people. <laughs> You know, yeah, yep. and that that in itself seemed kind of interesting. So in this case, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it'll turn out fine. Up to this point, it doesn't seem to me to add a whole lot. But mm. I guess I'll reserve judgment. Yeah, it seems like the play is meant to be the emotional climax of the series. How's the crowd going to react? You know, who's in the crowd? That reminds me a bit of that Jean Benet thing we saw a million years ago where they brought in a whole bunch of people like as a casting call and they use that as an excuse to ask them about their perceptions of the crime. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. There were 10 John Benets and the moms and everything. Yeah, I'm, I don't know how, how you feel about the contrivance of it, but as far as a way of exploring the legacy within the community, you can go and ask the barber and sit at the diner and, and ask people but I think this is one of the more unique ways of sort of stirring that up and taking the town's temperature by putting this on. And I think that the goal of the play, you know, is what to convince people that, yeah, these guys are actually innocent and they're innocent enough that you should consider them innocent. I, I don't know. I guess I'm interested to see how it, how it shakes out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. All right, guys, here we are in the business section. Kevin, what do we have going on for business right now? Well, right now on Patreon, you can listen to the Crime Writers on After Show. You can listen to uh, Married with Podcast. In fact, we're going to be having a live recording of Married with Podcast. Look in your Patreon feed for a link to sign up, and you can watch us. You can throw in your own questions about relationships, family, work, whatever. You also can, uh, if you join the Facebook group, which is Married with Podcasts, let's, let's discuss. discuss. You can submit your own questions. You can answer questions that people have been uh, submitting there. So you can watch us. You can jump on the screen, answer some of the questions, be judgy just like us. Yep. It's fantastic. Judgy as hell. Now in August, the Toby Balls Deep Dive Book Club will be returning. Toby, now's a good time to get everybody to do their homework. What books should they be reading right now so they'll be prepared? It's uh, Leah Satilli's new book, ooh, or, or I guess it's her first book, and it's ooh. called uh, When the Moon Turns to Blood. Mm. And I have not cracked it yet, but the uh, social media buzz has been very strong, yep. and I think it's it's pretty apropos for our current moment, because I think it has to do with, you know, super reactionary uh, political movements, and it sort of a theme for the last couple of months, fundamentalist Mormonism. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, it sounds like it's going to be good. I am looking forward to starting to read it and we'll be taping, you know, a month, a little bit more. Who's we? Oh, who are we? Yeah. yeah. Um, who do you have coming on? Oh man, this is really, you're really testing my memory here. Uh, uh, I think it's, on, um, I'm actually just trying to make sure it's not me. I think it's, <laughs> is it me? Yeah. Is it me? <laughs> Am I no. supposed to be reading this book? No, okay. you're the you're, you're the next one. Okay, you're the good. next one. You're, that's Tall Man. Okay. Um, it's going to be Amber Hunt. I know her. And hopefully Ooh. they're not listening to this and being like, oh my God, I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe they are. <laughs> and I think Janet Varney oh. and uh, Sarah D. Bunting. Nice. I believe that wow, is what one. Wow, what an all-star cast. Yeah, all you got panel. the A-listers there. Starting yes. strong. Yeah. We just got some good. news about Janet Varney. She's going to be even more famous soon, right? Yeah, TV show she just got picked up by Apple TV. Yeah, it's awesome. It's called Platonic. All right, so Kevin, is there anything else to talk about? Yeah, uh, also in Partners in Crime World, coming out on Wednesday, we're going to have the latest edition of These Are Their Stories. We're looking at a classic from The Mothership. That's season 10, episode 1. It's called Gun Show. Ah, it's wild. It's the first episode that Ed Green comes on. Who's Ed Green? Jesse L. Martin, and he is gorgeous. Gorgeous, yes. (laughs) 
And of course, what happens if you know Law and Order? This is what always happens after the you know McCoy decides that uh, it isn't enough to send the uh, the mass shooter to jail. He's got to go after the gun manufacturer that's too. Right. That's right. So that's classic. That's right. Lastly, if you want to get any of this great stuff, if you want to find out more about our reviews, you want to see crime writers on behind the scenes, maybe photos of the cat of the week, other great things, you can sign up for our newsletter. It's absolutely free. Just go to crimewriterson.com, put in your email address, and you will get our newsletter plus solicitations for vitamins. (laughs) All right, Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are... Tony Flanagan and Angie Albright. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Angie, for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you, all of you who support us on Patreon, and even those who don't, thank you just for listening. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. And thus ends the business section. I'm going to go ahead, Kevin, and fade that music out right now. All right, so we have a very unusual circumstance in this true crime documentary that we don't see very often. We have a new prosecutor who comes in, looks at evidence and says, I don't think these people did it and I need to do something about it. Rather than uh, digging the easy way out and being like, this case is solved and I'm just going to double down on it being solved because this will make us look bad if we do anything about it. This is this guy, Randy Rittenauer, um, who is basically suggesting that the convictions of six people be overturned in the face of a family who believe to this day, by the way, that these six people participated in this murder. That was one of the most incompetent in interrogations I have ever come across. To go ahead and give them the information about the case and then ask them what they know about the case. Toby, were you surprised that this guy was willing to retest the evidence, do all the things that needed to be done, and then take it to the state? And that even then at the state level, and this is Nebraska, right? The state attorney general was like, yeah, we need to take care of this as quickly as possible. I mean, when I think about like in making a murderer, Wisconsin, no. Um, you know, Maryland, no. You know, we see states over and over and over again that just fight to keep convictions in place, even when there is evidence that shows that people didn't do these crimes. The thing about Pam. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is like in terms of like being a normal human being and taking a look at it and saying, should we do something <laughs> about it? Like, no, it's not that surprising in terms of you being like a part of a government organ that history. And like you just said, there's this broad record of people in those situations looking at it and being like, eh, it's settled. You know, we're not going into this. I'm not going to embarrass the guy who preceded me. I think there's a tendency maybe to protect the institution at the expense of actual people that kind of takes over in a lot of these things. And the fact that that didn't happen this time and that this guy was like, yeah, this does not look right and did something about it. Kudos to him. It's sort of a sad commentary that we're talking about how surprised we were that it happened because it seems like the kind of thing that should happen. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of common sense and like human decency rather than let these guys like sit in jail for the rest of their lives or large portions of it. Yeah. And kudos to Tina Vath. She is the investigator who came on afterwards, was friends with Bert and really could have sort of looked the other way on his mistakes or downplayed them to some extent. But she also did that. And I think those are two examples of 
folks who were not involved in the original investigation or prosecution, so they don't have anything tied up in preserving those convictions, right? That DA, if he had not been voted out and Randy had come in, he would be just like all those other old cops. Well, that just proves that they didn't rape her, but they were all still there. And, oh my God, you know, the coffee cups? There were six coffee cups there. No, there freaking weren't. We are looking at the pictures. They were not sitting. Look at Laura shaking her head. She's like, nope. There's a couple of jelly glasses there and <laughs> two things with a handle and the pot of coffee, and that's still all going to come out later. But I think that that's the thing, right, is if you're, if you're the prosecutor, there is what the law allows and what your oath is and all this other stuff. But a lot of times it just comes down to that, oh, no, I prosecuted this. I know they're guilty. I'm not going to admit that they're not guilty. So even though, yeah, I believe in the science and the DNA and I'll use that to convict you, the DNA shows that you didn't do it. Eh, well, it doesn't exonerate you. Yeah. yeah. So it would have taken somebody like, D.A. Randy to come along and who had no ego about it and just said, all right, well, let's let's fix this fast. You know, Laura, what are your thoughts about Tina Vath? Yeah. So I thought that was something that was really well told in this. Um, so Tina, she's the investigator that well, she starts as a dispatcher and she's nosy. I'm like, I loved her right off the bat because she was like, I wanted to know what was happening. So they're like, you can't be a dispatcher. Now you need to be a detective. But I, I thought they set it up really well because, you know, again, this is a small town and she comes in and now she's a detective and she and her significant other are friends, turns out to be best friends with Bert and his wife and they do everything together. And she is really interested in this case all along. You hear that. But then when the rubber hits the road, she's like, mm, sorry, Bert. And I'll be curious to see if the documentary revisits that because I thought it was just such a significant personal relationship. And you see how it was torn apart by her desire to follow the case to its conclusion, to its correct conclusion despite 1-800-Flowers having his own version of what he thought happened. So I thought that was a really well done part of this in terms, because I, I think the thing of this for me was that there were a lot of personal relationships in this. This was a small town. There was a lot of baggage for some of the people. Um, one of the things, um, when you saw like the pictures of all of them hanging out, of course, with their plastic cups of beer, like you knew these were like pals that were hanging out. And so for her, Tina, to take that, you know, make that decision to follow the case as opposed to maintaining that personal relationship was pretty significant. I thought. Yeah, it's it's really difficult for me to watch these family members who are digging their heels in against what is objectively true. It's really, really hard. What's especially hard about it is that it's very typically prosecutors who lead family members down that road. And here we have instead this dumb detective who the documentary shows us and we hear was not a good detective. Like he was not. He was a bad, like not smart cop who had a bad track record to begin with and then did this case poorly, but they're all in with this guy. And we are looking at pictures that are contrary to what he is saying out loud. And yet the family is like, yes, yes, yes. The theory of the crime that there, there are not six coffee cups there. There just are not. And yet he keeps asserting that there are. 
And we, the viewer, can see that there are not six coffee cups there. We can just see it. And that he has the family saying things like, well, why isn't my DNA there? Well, the bottom line is your DNA could have been there. You were probably excluded. They weren't looking for your DNA. Like your DNA probably also wouldn't have been in your grandmother's underwear, right? Like they were not testing things that your DNA would have been on, or if your DNA was there, you were excluded because you were a family member. It is so painful to watch that stuff. Yeah, but I also can understand why family members of victims would hold on to that. If anybody I would give a pass to, it would be no. the loved ones and say, look... But- I'm not mad at them, Kevin. No, 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 no It's I know. painful to see. It is. I mean, for 20 years, this is what they believed, and for them, it can be pretty hard to sort of... The people that you have been hating you can't hate them anymore and then there's somebody else you can't get justice because the guy who really did it is dead you just have to figure out the way to put these two versions of the story together one you know the forgotten story and one the actual story where you're like now you've got six people and one rapist murderer and they're all having a party and drinking coffee and uh, it's Cersei's fault, it's, though. It's Cersei's fault. Yeah. Because he is telling them lies. He's telling them things that are not true. And they are buying them. And Toby, you sent a note about the Dateline thing. I can answer it for you. You said you were confused about that. The documentarians had them sit down and watch a Dateline episode about the case. And they were all watching it together. Documentarians set up a scene where Cersei and the family watched a Dateline episode about the convictions being overturned so that the family and Cersei could all comment on everything the Dateline episode got wrong. And so that Cersei and family, so that they would get on camera, Cersei and family talking about how Rittenauer was wrong, Cersei and family talking about how Tina Vath was wrong, so that they would get reactions to all the real findings being wrong. They had them watch a Dateline episode to do that. And it was incredibly painful. I mean, Cersei's a liar and a bad cop, and this poor family, like, they're buying it. Like, it's nuts. There was zero physical evidence that any of those people set foot in Helen's apartment. I don't know how six people could be in there and not leave a trace of evidence. We all fit in that apartment. And there was how many of us? And our traces weren't there either. So that proves absolutely nothing. What did you think about, like, just the the family digging in their heels? Like, it's really tough, right, Toby? Yeah, well, just let me clarify. So they like had a video of this thing that they had the whole family and they had family. They had the family and Cersei watch an old Dateline episode together and they filmed them watching it. All right. So it wasn't like it happens to be on and they all got together for a party and we happen to show up and video it. No, it's another thing the documentarian set up for our viewing pleasure. All right. Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, I, you know, sort of like Kevin, it's like, I don't want to tell people how to process their grief or whatever, because I, I, it's like hard to imagine. And and I do think it's, it's something that's so central to your life, like a, a central life thing. And that you've come to trust Cersei and he's telling you that these people are guilty. And then when they're sort of revealed to be not guilty and Cersei's sort of revealed to not be this, heroic genius cop but kind of a a a bumbler i think it's asking a lot for people with that much emotional investment to completely reassess their thoughts and feelings about all these people I, i think it's a lot to ask i mean people don't change like strongly held beliefs on stuff that doesn't really even matter to them. So something like this, that matters a lot. I think it's really, really hard to get people to reassess 
to that level. That being said, you know, I mean, it's part of like what makes Cersei, I guess, kind of interesting, but also just really massively frustrating is that he's not introspective enough to think what would be helpful for this family rather than just my own trying to save face with myself is could I give them some peace by saying, you know what? I kind of fucked up. The DNA stuff is proof that these guys didn't do it. They now have the right guy. You know, I'm sorry he's dead and you don't get to see him on trial and and get that kind of thing. But that's just unfortunately the way it is. Yeah. But we now know what happened instead of weaving this thing, which is like, yeah, these six people came in and they did all this stuff and then they left. And then another guy came in like a little bit later. Yeah. And then he did this. It's like, I, you know, that just doesn't seem right on a day that they were drinking coffee minus seven degrees outside. Two different groups of people are going to show up to her apartment and mess with her. I I don't know. But here's the part that wasn't in this. So I went and did a little reading. And Toby, I know you're always reading The New Yorker. There was an article in 2017 in The New Yorker about this case. And the guy that the DNA eventually came back to, and I don't know why they didn't mention this in this documentary. His grandmother lived in that building. They mentioned that. Because they're like... Did yeah, they? Okay, yeah. I guess I missed that part because I missed. I I just had the part. Oh, he was walking down the street and it was cold and it was the first door he came right. to. They later said, yeah, his grandmother lived there too, so he was familiar. Yeah, but I I guess I had a hard time. I felt really really badly for the family because I felt like you could see that this community as a whole had really latched on to the initial theory of these six people being the ones responsible. And even when they went out and talked to people, they're like, they did it. I know they did it. I don't care, like, that they got off or whatever. It's not true. And so the family also was very much, you know, committed to that narrative. But it just sounded so crazy to me that I guess just logically, I couldn't see how it was actually something that happened. And I understand they were trying to rationalize everything. But it it was just, for me, it was something that just didn't gel. As you guys have been saying. Final question for you, Kevin. Do you think we're ever going to get to a point where people stop fucking saying, why would people confess to a crime they didn't commit? Probably not, right? Because that's very convincing for the average Joe, somebody who hasn't been consuming this kind of media for a while. Why would you say that? Because I, I would never say that. But we know now because of things like the read technique and the way that people can be coerced into saying this. We see this here. I don't think actually anybody said they killed Helen Wilson, right? They all pointed to everybody else. They put themselves at the crime scene and said, I saw this one doing this and that one doing that. Nobody in their false confession said, yes, I raped her. Am I wrong about that? No, but I think what was interesting about this, again, we're only four episodes in, so it might get to that, but I was reading some articles about Because this is the largest, like, six people wrongfully confessed. Mm -hmm. That's, like, apparently the largest in U.S. history of any case. And so on its face to the average person, Laura, that six people, it's maybe one. How could six? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that was my thing. I'm like, because even me, as I'm watching, I'm like, six, especially the way that this story was set up when you watch it and you hear about this poor grandmother having, like, it's horrible what happened to this woman. And so you're like six people like admitted to doing this. Like I've talked about this before on this podcast about how 
I went through training when I was a defense investigator about memory and how memory works. And the training I went to was specifically for childhood sexual abuse, but it showed how suggestible children were. And there was an expert at Cornell who was an expert in childhood suggestibility. And that was, and, and they showed videos of like the first time they'd be like, Kevin, did you go out to the woodpile and beat the rats? And you'd be like, no, I was never at the woodpile. And then two weeks later, I'd be like, Kevin, did you go out to the woodpile and beat the rats? And you'd be like, I might have been at the woodpile, but I didn't beat the rats. And then by like the fourth week, you're like, yeah, I beat the rats because it's just the way that they're questioning you. So you could definitely see that sort of playing out in this case. But it's also, I guess I want to see more from this documentary on the psychology of that because I find that really interesting. You know, that's with adults too, like corruptibility of memory. It's it's just very easy. And especially for them thinking back 20 years or however long it was on something that happened that they've talked about endlessly, been asked about endlessly, all these things, the memories they have now have very little to do with what actually happened. And so it's just, it's not surprising that somebody would have a hard time accurately remembering what, I mean, it's just, it's just not that surprising. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Mind Over Murder? It's a multi-part documentary from HBO Originals. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Mind Over Murder? I'm giving thumbs up for the filmmaking and the reporting and the research that went into this documentary. But I want to preface that with like, this is a really hard watch. This was something that as I watched it, I was like, this is, makes me feel sick. When I hear about people or animals that are helpless when they are being abused, it's uh, really hard for me to take. And that was this case. It was, it was a horrible case because this documentary doesn't just tell you a little bit about what happened. It tells you everything that happened to this grandmother in graphic detail, blow by blow. However, I think that this is a really important story because it does show that we can be very easily swayed as investigators, as police, as jury members by those horrific details so that we do not perhaps see the whole picture when people that are 
somehow drawn into this that maybe were not involved, in this case, definitely were not involved, were, you know, convinced to confess. So I think it's a really interesting case study. I'm hoping in the final two episodes, there is more information about the sort of background with the psychology of how false confessions happen and why they happen. And and this case being, you know, six people wrongfully confessing is from all I've read on the interwebs up there with all of the cases around the country. So I would like to sort of hear how this case has made changes in other cases. I, I mean, because this just definitely feels like something that has ripple effects, but it's a hard watch. So get ready. Toby Ball. Yeah, I'm kind of conflicted about this. You know, on the good side, I think it's it's a very interesting case. I think a lot of interesting things get kind of brought up in it about memory, about kind of like the hierarchy of evidence, like what's considered stronger evidence than other things, freaking forensics, like the shit that can happen with forensics. On the other hand, the director makes a lot of decisions in this. Like this thing is set up where they have made a lot of choices. And I think a lot of those choices are fine. And I think some of those choices are just really, really hard for me to wrap my head around why they would do that. Like, I, I don't know if this is really a spoiler, but if you listen to the whole thing, there is a scene which I was kind of confused about, but which Rebecca informs me was sort of set up in order to provoke a certain reaction. And I, I just thought there were things like that, that, that were kind of inorganic and meant to, it, it just seemed manipulative of both people who are in the documentary and then for the people who are watching the documentary as well, which I thought was kind of problematic. So I'm, you know, I'm sort of a thumb sideways, I guess. The story is so interesting and the issues they bring up are so good because normally it would be an easy thumbs down because of what I kind of feel like is a little bit of manipulation. Kevin Flynn, thumbs up or thumbs down for Mind Over Murder. I'm going to go uh, thumbs up. I acknowledge both of what my fellow panelists said about this being a difficult watch and having some concerns about the contrivances of the documentarians to sort of, you know, in a, in a not totally reality show based, but to create situations with which the people who are involved and members of the community will uh, react to what happens. As of the time of this recording, we haven't gotten to the episodes talking more in depth about Dr. Price and the whole thing about recovered memory, because you put that alongside false confessions and you've got a huge clusterfuck. But the story is really compelling. And even though I do know how it ends, we kind of hear right off the top that they're exonerated. But what happens when they get there and beyond that? I'm still in for that. So hoping they land the plane. But as of right now, I'm going to go with a thumbs up. Okay, so I am closest to Toby on this. I think this case is interesting enough that it did not need the choices the director made. There were many parts of this that were excellently constructed and really well told. And then the director inserts herself and her choices and her contrivances and really, for me, messes with the audience in such a way and messes with the subjects in such a way that it takes away from what could just be a very straight telling of a really freaking compelling and interesting wrongful conviction story. Six people gave false confessions to one crime. That is incredible. 
by itself. So I kept thinking when I was watching this about Trial 4, which was an outstanding documentary watched about a wrongful conviction in Boston. I loved that documentary because it was very straight. It was about like the crime, the trials, the confession, and the fight to get the guy off, right? And it didn't do anything else besides tell us that story. This could have been that. And there's just so much material there. And just taking out the play, taking out all of those things, there was enough here. And so, yeah, I got to go sideways. I really want to go up, but I can't because... If I were, say, on the side of believing that the Beatrice Six were actually guilty, I think the documentarian's choices actually would not help me. I I don't think it would help me change my mind because I would be like, oh, well, look, uh, look at this. Like she has these people in this play trying to make me feel this way. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't help the case that the facts themselves are what you need, not this other stuff. So. Yeah, I can't go fully thumbs up for Mind Over Murder. I got to go thumb sideways, too. I think some of the choices, just manipulative, bad, and kind of gross. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of... Crime of the week! The week. This week, Albuquerque will unveil two statues of the city's most infamous criminals. The producers of Breaking Bad have donated statues of meth manufacturing characters Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. The bronze sculptures are a thank you to the New Mexico City for hosting them for two TV shows and a movie. Municipal leaders say they're grateful, too. The show's desert location porn and popular characters have boosted tourism in Albuquerque. The spinoff show Better Call Saul wraps up its sixth and final season next month. Walter and Jesse join a growing list of nearly a dozen TV characters who've been made into statues. You can find Samantha from Bewitched in Salem, a bronze Fonz in Milwaukee, and a Mr. Spock in Vulcan, Alberta. So panel, he's the one who knocks. Now Walter White gets his due. Who should be the next TV character to get their own statue? Laura Bricker, what do you think? How about the next podcast character, Rebecca? I vote Madeline Barron. Especially Mm. based on recent events, that is my vote. And put it right in that racist cracker town there. (laughs) That's a good idea. Winona, Mississippi. What do you think, Toby Ball? What is the next TV character who should get their own statue? Uh, Crockett and Tubbs in Miami. Nice. Uh, What do you think, Kevin? I can't believe Toby missed this, but you got to do Mulder and Scully and Roswell. Oh, that's pretty good. I'm going for the rooftop pizza. Should also get its own statue in Albuquerque. All right. Tread lightly. That's going to do it for us. But before we go, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week? And is it actually not a person? We do have a cat of the week, and it is actually not a person. This comes to us from the land down under. Nice. Um, which is exciting. It comes to us from Lisa Stella, Patreon member Lisa from New South Wales, Australia, Pottsville. Lisa sent a very nice picture of, and, and I related to this because before our dear beloved dog Buddy died, this used to be a frequency in my house where the cat would be on the dog bed and the dog would be next to the dog bed. And in Lisa's picture, the cat is on the dog bed and the dog is on the cat bed. And it says, my cat's name is Casper. He is cheeky. My long-suffering beagle is Reggie. Thank you very much for providing fantastic podcast content with thoughtful, on-point reviews, Lisa. And I just related to this so much. So, Lisa, you know what? Your long-suffering beagle will be just fine. Nice. And 
cats are just going to be cats. That's right. Take it, for, take it from me. Rocky Flintstone sitting on the table. Now that he has his urinary issues, meowing at me all day because he wants a special food. Um, cats are going to be cats. All right, Laura Bricker, if folks want to tweet to you and send you their suggestions for Cat of the Week, of course, they can also email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com or submit them on Facebook. But if they do want to tweet you, how can they find you there? They can find me at Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to tweet to you about other UFO ephemera besides Mulder and Scully in Roswell, New Mexico, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, what about you? How can you be found on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On and please join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You get the Crime Writers On after show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the rad Liv Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin P. Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where actors are rehearsing their own stage adaptation of today's podcast. Mm. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Imagine Dragons? Yeah, they're very famous. Imagine dragging these nuts across your face. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke oh, that your God. nephew told at, uh, yeah. at dinner the other day. Oh, no, your little nephew, the one that you corrupted, the one that they were no, like, Uncle my Kevin nephew. had bad words. That's, a, that's my 13-year-old's favorite joke, someone says. Yeah. Yes. All right. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.